Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. We are recording. Yay, we're recording and it's 4th of July and we have helicopters overhead and leaf blowers on either side of us and screaming children and lawnmowers and splashing pools that aren't in my backyard. Um, happy 4th of July. We're here already. Happy 4th. The helicopter traffic has picked up over Hampton Bays. I think we all agree. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. A lot of people out on the road. So, um, yeah, so this week, um, let's introduce ourselves and say who's with us. So, Bill Sutton is with us today. Hi, I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And we have Brendan O'Reilly. Hi, I'm Brendan O'Reilly. I am the features editor. And we have Joe Shaw. Uh, Joe Shaw, and I am the executive editor. And my name's Annette Hinkle, and I am the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. So today we're, um, we're going to talk a bit about a story that Joe Shaw did in the paper, which is a really interesting and timely piece in that it talks about police reform. And it's uh, Bill Wilson, William Wilson, who was the former police chief of both Southampton Village and Southampton Town. And the interesting thing about this is that Bill has since departed the department, which in a way I think gives him some freedom to say things that probably no police officers would say while they're still in office. So uh, Joe, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your discussion and sort of what you learned and was revealed in that talk. You know, he's a guy who had 28 years in law enforcement on the South Fork. He eventually became uh, Southampton Village Chief and then uh, I believe it was in 2012, he became Southampton Town Police Chief. And what was interesting was when he was hired then, he makes it pretty clear that he was hired with a mandate to reform the town police department. You know, and, and going back to when I, you know, even when I made chief in Southampton Village, which was in 2006, and then went over to the town in 2011, I always had an eye on reforming what I could on a, on a small level. Um, you know, some of the criminal justice practices. And he had a very rough run of only 18 months uh, to do that. Um, and his efforts to reform, which um, he frankly acknowledges failed and cost him his job. Uh, it was a tumultuous 18 months. He fought a lot with the Southampton Town Board. Uh, I think he ruffled a lot of feathers within his own department, within leadership in his department and uh, the rank and file. Uh, and he actually left with sort of a cloud over him because it was when the hurricane, it was Hurricane Sandy, I believe, and uh, he was away and didn't come back immediately. And uh, then it ended up being the last straw that uh, they called for his resignation, basically, and he gave it. Uh, he said candidly in our interview that he was pretty much already done by that point anyway, that the 18-month stretch was, was really, had run its course and he was going to be leaving the department anyway. You know, I've become a study of police reform over the last, you know, 10 years because of my experiences when I did switch departments. And I would agree with you when you said, arguably, that's what ended my run. That's what ended my run. I take full responsibility for my portion of that. But trying to reform government and specifically criminal justice agencies, 
that is a difficult, difficult task. And, and we're seeing that right now nationwide. Part of the reason we talked with him is he had that perspective both as an on-the-street cop and as a police chief and uh, tried to tackle reform and is the first one to acknowledge how difficult it will be to reform police departments. Even at a small town level, uh, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. And I'm at a point now where I'm like, if we don't get systemic organizational change within law enforcement, and I'm not just talking about the Hamptons or New York City, I'm talking about nationwide criminal, serious criminal justice reforms, there is going to be blood in the streets. This was a wake-up call for government and for law enforcement, all right? Have, have you ever seen this level of angst? Now, all right, everybody was cooped up for three months. You got coronavirus going on. I understand this is an emotional time for the populace. But the level of angst being focused at law enforcement, which breaks my heart because 99% of them are hardworking, good people. They are my brothers and sisters. I keep tight relationships with many, many, many of them. But it's the, it's the culture and it's the organizations that need to be changed. It is too easy to hire. It is too hard to fire. I just wonder if he was sort of set up from the beginning to fail or if he was just looking to reform in ways that a lot of people did not want him to reform it. It's a really interesting question. And I think it probably uh, could be answered either way, depending on your position. I think what it does say is how challenging it is to try and tackle a reform agenda, because you're right. I think with the, the big thing that happened during his tenure was that the town's street crimes unit, which was essentially its undercover unit that did a lot of drug investigations because the town police at that point were not cooperating with the East End Drug Task Force. And so they created this street crime unit to be their own little uh, drug task force. Well, during uh, Chief Wilson's tenure, that street crimes unit was disbanded and uh, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office actually stepped in after an investigation and withdrew charges against numerous uh, drug offenders. And in fact, a couple of people were released from prison who had been convicted on evidence and testimony that came out of the street crime unit. So it was a, a pretty big black eye for the department, but it goes back to what you say, Annette, which is, I think the chief wanted to see some disciplinary action taken in connection with that and some other things, and it didn't really work out that way. And, and Brendan, I think you were, you were reporting on a lot of this uh, when it was happening. I think some of that involved uh, the man who eventually came to replace Chief Wilson as the police chief, correct? Well, there was a lieutenant who William Wilson wanted to be disciplined over uh, his handling and his response to a drug addicted police officer in the street crimes unit. And against the police chief, William Wilson's recommendation, that lieutenant was instead promoted to captain. And then after William Wilson left the department, that lieutenant became the chief who, who replaced Wilson. So there was a huge disconnect between what the town board did and what their own police chief wanted. And with that kind of relationship, um, it's no wonder that Wilson didn't last uh, more than 18 months as the chief. One of the things that I found was, you know, that system <laughs> is set up for the protection of the employee. And policing is a difficult job. I don't think that anybody would disagree with that. Um, 
but it is almost impossible to hold somebody accountable to the level of which they should be held accountable for their specific offense within the current system. Uh, one of the issues that came up was that uh, a second lieutenant who had been in charge of the street crimes unit previously was one of the Republican committeemen. So the Republican committeemen choose who the Republican Party of Southampton Town nominates to the town board. How do you have a police department employee has that kind of power over a councilman when the councilmen and the councilwomen are supposed to be the ones making decisions over the police department? If I may, though, I'll say this. Wilson said in our Q&A, I think he was fairly diplomatic about all this, and I don't think he was he was doing this to settle scores or anything. But his point was, when you're talking about reform, and this goes back to your original question, Annette, when you're talking about police reform, it's not just about the police chief and the officers. You have to worry about how it's going to affect the officers. You have to worry about the unions being on board with whatever you're doing. You have to worry about the town board or the village board or whoever's above you being on board what you're doing. And everything you do, you run the risk of stepping on toes in one direction or the other. And one of his big complaints in our Q&A was that the, the police chief really doesn't have enough power to discipline that he's not able, he or she is not able to hold the officers of a department, uh, hold their feet to the fire when, when they need to be disciplined because the unions have so much power and because they all answer to a board that's above them as well. And so that's almost impossible for a chief to negotiate and, and come up with a, with a reform strategy. It was almost impossible to make major sweeping changes in a department. And, and I think the one change that, that did come was as the result of misconduct, and it did bring a sweeping change. That street crime unit disappeared after that, but he would make the point that not a whole lot else changed. And can you talk about racism a little bit? That's a whole other issue of trying to reform from the inside. If you have somebody that joins a department coming from a very specific sort of point of view. Yeah, he, you know, uh, Bill Wilson's point, I think, is a little broader, which is the police department hires from society, and society has racists in it. And so you're going to have racists who get hired in the police department. Now, whether there's a higher number or not, I think that's that's open for discussion. But the point is, you are going to have, he said, there's racism in a police department because there's racism in society. Those things are not mutually exclusive. I think that's fair. But he also, I think, uh, it was pretty startling to hear uh, how regularly he saw racism among colleagues in the police department. And he said, you know, when he got to be chief, maybe it was a little less because people were on their best behavior around him. But, you know, he said it was pretty common. And, and uh, officers of color were used to hearing the N-word, both from the public being thrown at them and, and from even fellow officers at times. So, I, you know, he said it's it's systemic. I mean, uh, this is this is a a 28-year police veteran who served as a chief in two different departments, confirming that there is a systemic problem in police departments with racism. I think that's significant. I really do. What happened in Minneapolis to Mr. Floyd was criminal. It was indefensible and unexcusable. And what happened there, 
and it is a systemic problem. And I'm going to say it flat out. I've seen it with my own two eyes. I started working in the mid 80s or, or early 80s. You know, there is systemic racism throughout law enforcement, but there's systemic racism throughout society. And that's where police officers come from. You know, they don't, they, I'm going to quote Chief uh, Commissioner Bratt, they don't pull police officers off of Mars. They're hired from the general populace, you know? Um, there's a cultural issue. <sighs> what happened in Minneapolis probably set the public's relations with their police departments back 200 years. That was completely and utterly egregious, and there's just no excuse for it. But it happens, and it happens, unfortunately, frequently. You tell a bunch of adrenaline junkie, young police officers, go get them, that's exactly what they're going to do. You know, and do you teach them how to de-escalate? Do you teach them how to handle the mentally ill? Do you teach them how to possibly get somebody help with the drug abuse problem? No. You teach them how to use a gun. You teach them tactical handcuffing. You teach them how to use a nightstick, PR-24, expandable, whatever. You teach them how to use a taser. But even that you don't teach them well enough, as is demonstrated by what we have going on here now. There needs to be a shift in mindset in mindset or I shudder to think what is going to happen the next time somebody videotapes a person of color being strangled to death for eight minutes. And it seems too like the amount of training that they get is very much geared toward not de-escalation necessarily, but a lot of the tactics may seem heavy-handed. And that kind of goes to that whole discussion of defunding the police, which doesn't necessarily mean disbanding the police. It just means maybe shifting of budgets to social workers or mental health care workers. So instead of the cops being called to every scene, um, there may be some where there's a different agency that could better handle it, but we've been putting so much money into policing at a very um, aggressive level in some in some cases that there really isn't an opportunity for other ways to handle situations that could maybe end up in a much less violent manner. Sure. Well, I think that's that's part of the the larger national conversation as well. Is is that people call nine one one? You know, you called nine one one if there was a crime going on, but now it's the neighbors doing this or it's social issues or, or whatever. And these cops have to come out. They, they're trained in, in how to deal with um, a domestic incident or whatever, if it's nonviolent or, you know, or mental health, but they don't have as much training as a professional. But we expect them to be these super cops to come out and handle every single situation. It just seems logical that if you have professionals that are better trained to deal with that and can deal with that on a daily basis than the police officers can deal with law enforcement and what they're better trained to, to deal with. Yeah, I mean, I think he said, police are crime fighters. That's what they're there for. They're there to fight crime. And now their mission has really broadened that if you have a family member with, uh, who's struggling with mental illness and they've gone off their meds, your first call is to the police department and they're the first ones to respond. And they may not have 
the tools to to deal with that. And 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 there may be uh, you know some of that is on the fact that we call on the police because the police are available twenty four seven, and there are first call that we make is 911 for any any emergency but it now we're starting to see some of the problems with that is uh, it's putting police onto the scene of of situations they may not be well trained to deal with there's not enough training with the responsibility level that you're carrying by carrying that firearm being able to arrest people they're going to throw around catchphrases joe it's all lip service they're going to throw around catchphrases like community oriented policing problem oriented policing less lethal and de-escalation and they're going to spend four hours on it and a year from now somewhere in this country a year from now there's going to be cities burning because there's going to be another video but realize too that the other thing is that if you have someone who's got undergoing an emotional crisis and uh they are acting out in a violent way if you are a therapist you might deal with that in a certain way. If you're a police officer, you simply see acting out as somebody becoming violent and you respond the way a police officer responds to violence, which is to try and stop it and to try and bring it under control. And that can actually worsen some of the situations where a therapist might know that there's another way to approach it. it it's, you know, it's not to make excuses, but, but I think that, that that's one of the recognitions that I think is coming out of this whole conversation. And by the way, it is a conversation, and I'm excited that we're actually going to be continuing that conversation this week. Our virtual sessions event on Thursday is going to be on this topic, and we have several of the local police officials, including Chief uh, Steven Skrinecki, who's from the Southampton Town Department, uh, Chief Sarlo from East Hampton. Uh, we've, we've got a lot of police officials. We've got Willie Jenkins, who was one of the organizers of the Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, we've got some of the elected officials. We're going to have this conversation. I think that it's raised a lot of issues that have come up over the years, but certainly I think the death of George Floyd has really crystallized a lot of this, and it's made us start to have a conversation that is long overdue about what needs to change. And there's a lot of tentacles to that topic. And, and I think it's encouraging that, that the state is coming in, telling departments, although not being real forced or detail-oriented, but is coming in and telling departments that they have to make some changes and they have to put forward a plan. And and by next year, show some solid changes to deal with some of these issues in their departments. But that was something that, that the governor dictated a, a few weeks ago. And it's going to be every municipality that has a police department is, has to, is going to have to put forward some kind of plan to, to show some change. I'm curious to see what, how those turn out. He, he said it's going to be very difficult, but he did talk about having an optimism that the movement that that he's seen and he talked uh, he compared it a bit to to back in the 90s with Ro the rodney king video and but he said you know what happened was there was a conversation for a while and then it sort of disappeared and nothing happened and he said this feels more like a movement that's going to keep the the progress going but he makes no bones about the fact that it's going to be a difficult thing to do to bring about real significant changes because you have police unions that have a role to play in this and it may not be a role towards change it may be towards trying to keep things the same you have elected officials who are going to have the ultimate responsibility who frankly may not have the courage to make some of the changes that are necessary and 
ultimately we can make all these changes we want at policies and procedures. It's going to be up to individual police officers to, to take them into practice. That's a, that's, a, that's a big lift to get all those people on the same page. I mean, it's going to be a challenge, but I'm extremely optimistic. But with that being said, what's the option? <laughs> what is the option? You cannot ignore this. You know, you, Rodney King was almost 30 years ago. You know, here, and here we are today. Like, you, you can't continue to ignore this. If you don't do something to reform at least law enforcement on a societal level, if not go after racism as a whole at this point, which we've been fighting for ever since this country was born, you're going to have another insurrection. It's just that simple. You know, and the demographics are continuously changing, continuously changing. You bury your head in the sand for another 30 years, you're going to wind up with entire cities burned to the ground because that is the frustration and the anger level that you're seeing. What's, what's interesting to me is these conversations at the department level, like here on the South Fork, where you have the town police and the village police departments, that we haven't, thankfully, had that much incidence of uh, use of force being an issue. But you have to wonder about policing and the way policing is undertaken in a community like this that is so racially mixed, uh, whether the, the, the police are as aware of the, tent, the temptation for there to, to be slip in policies so that they become racially motivated and, and how you avoid that and what needs to be done to make sure that doesn't happen. I am looking forward to the conversation on Thursday because I think part of what we try and do with these events is bring together disparate groups to have a conversation. And this will be one time when, when we will have a Black Lives Matter representative sitting at the same table with local police. And, I th and you know, that's not a big deal because I think Willie Jenkins, when he was on our program a couple of weeks ago, he talked about the fact they work with the police departments now before the protests to try and avoid problems. So I don't think it's, it's going to be a huge showdown or anything, but I think it would be really interesting to have both of them at the table and hear, hear their different views on how things stand and what needs to happen in the future. All right. I'm sitting outside in the, I just saw um, some lightning and some thunder that started to sound. Can you hear it? Yeah. Uh, it's kind of cool, but I'm also like, geez, I'm sitting here with all this electrical equipment. So um, maybe that'll put an end to the helicopters for the time being as well. Yes. So on that note, are we all good? Can we go? Let's stop. All right. Excellent. Happy 4th to everybody. Bring your umbrella. All right. Bye, guys. <laughs> bye. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and SagHarborExpress.com.
Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts. 